To be in exile is not to be at home. Perhaps the, uh, the most immediate experience uh, of the feeling of exile, certainly not of exile itself, that, that I could point you to is the, the experience of getting off an airplane in a foreign country. And as soon as you step off the plane, you recognize that this is a different place and that you don't belong here. There's a different language, a different culture, different clothing, um, different ways of, of doing things. And you feel out of place and you feel uncomfortable. Um, but exile, the reality of exile, is much more than just a passing visit. There's no um, prospect of reboarding the plane in a couple of hours when you're in exile and going home. It's living in and settling in a place that we don't belong, and oftentimes um, that we're, we're in, not by our own choice. To be in exile implies discomfort. It implies challenge, unsettledness, discontent, even sorrow, and certainly, usually, a longing for home of some kind. In the middle of the 6th century B.C., the Jews were in exile. They were in exile in Babylon. They were God's people. They were the nation of Israel. They had the promises. But they had been conquered by this foreign uh, power, Babylon, and they had been sent away from their homeland, from Jerusalem and Judea, and, and sent to Babylon to live under foreign rule in a place that was far away from home. Psalm 137 actually gives us a glimpse of what their sadness and their gloom was like in exile, where it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. The party was over. The uh, karaoke machine had been put away. Um, The drinks had been put aside. And it was time to be gloomy. And it was time um, to be sad. God's temple had been put into ruins. God's land had been ransacked. The Davidic king had been overthrown. And judgment had come upon this people, the people of God. Hope was lost. It was a very, very dark time. Now, of course, our situation in Boston isn't quite like the 6th century Jewish situation. In fact, it's very different. But it's not entirely dissimilar There is a very real and accurate sense in which we, who identify ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are currently actually in exile. We we may have vocations, we may have homes, may have families, um, lots of different things that make us feel at times like we're actually at home. But the reality is is that we're not. Not in this world of of sin, this world of of rebellion, uh, this world of evil, this world of death this world that's not actually oriented in the direction of its maker, but is actually oriented in a different direction. So we're we're called strangers and exiles, both in 1 Peter chapter 2 and also in Hebrews chapter 11, when um, the the author of Hebrews is describing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're called strangers and exiles. And if if we're honest for a moment, I I like to plead with you honestly, to think honestly about our lives. We, We know our status as exiles quite well as human beings. In fact, the the anguish and the sorrow that we feel uh, every time that someone that we know dies or gets very ill is a a reminder to us that that death and illness are unwanted intruders in this good creation that God has made. Just like injustice or broken relationships or violence or greed or you can fill in the blank, all of these things grate against us deeply at one level. 
Their everyday occurrence and our all-too-easy participation in these kinds of things is something that tells us that all is not well. Instead of a home, we often feel like we're living in the midst of a battlefield and that we're taking hit after hit after hit. We know deeply that, that things in the world as we experience it are not supposed to be this way and that, in fact, all isn't well. And we know this at a very basic level at a deep and basic level. But for us and also for ancient Israel, we we were or we are active participants in creating the exile. Just a little twist here. They they turned from the Lord. They trusted in their own in in other authorities like Assyria. They they turned to foreign nations instead of to their God. And they worshiped other gods. They worshiped gods that weren't gods and idols. And and we too have actually become active participants in evil and sin, in rebellion against our maker. This is one of the, the, um, the basic affirmations about the human condition in the biblical witness, is that we're not actually just innocent bystanders um, to the world that I've just described that is sometimes challenging, but, but we actually have blood on our hands as human beings. Our exilic conditions, just like theirs back in the 6th century BC, are in many ways of our own making. We're implicated in the effects of sin all around us. And it's a wonder um, that there is any way to continue forward sometimes in this world of exile. Maybe you feel like that tonight. Maybe you feel like you're all worn out um, from the trials of the world as it presents itself to you. Maybe, maybe there's been some intense discouragement Um, in your life this week. Maybe there have been some challenges over the last couple of weeks that make it very difficult for you to want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, Challenges at work, maybe challenges at home. Maybe it's bad news from distant family or friends. The the life of exile can actually be quite exhausting and depleting for us as, as human beings. So one option for us and one option for ancient Israel in the context of exile is to give up. Uh, We we can actually throw in the towel and we can say, you know, enough is enough. I'm tired of just kind of holding out for whatever I'm holding out for. I'm not even sure anymore. And we can then make this subtle turn to serve another God. Maybe one more native to the conditions of the world that we experience on a daily basis. This this isn't just some kind of um, fanciful possibility. It's actually an everyday, real, live temptation for each one of us. How easy it is to start believing what we see or what we feel or what we experience on a daily basis over and against what we believe. We can hear the Jews in the 6th century BC thinking, you know, maybe, maybe Marduk, the Babylonian god who ensured the comfort and material prosperity of Babylon and the military success uh, and prowess and strength of Babylon, maybe Marduk is actually the true god after all. Maybe we've been wrong this whole time. Maybe the Babylonians are right. And so, first they just kind of dip their big toe in the water Um, Maybe a week later, they put their whole foot in. Maybe a a month or two later, they put their leg in. And then sooner or later, maybe it's months, maybe it's years down the road, they're they're literally just swimming in the sea of their captivity. Decked out in Marduk's gear from head to foot. Singing his songs and serving his minions. Or for us, maybe all those, you know, this is the way we do it. Um, and this is as old as, as humanity is. If you read Psalm 73, it's all about this kind of wrestling in the human heart. 
And why is it, Lord, that the wicked seem to prosper? So maybe, maybe for us it's that the, all, you know, all those who pursue power or money or pleasure, maybe they're actually right. Maybe it's time to get on that train, to get me some of that, to, to give up what I'm holding out for and just to, to dip in a little bit. They seem like the ones who are getting to have all the fun, you know? Maybe it's time to throw in the towel. So actually, instead of sometimes, instead of just kind of overtly just kind of exchanging one uniform for the other, we, we start to hedge our bets a little bit and, and, and uh, take a bit here, a bit there, flirt with the gods of this age the way that we sometimes do it. Exile is not an easy place to be. It wasn't for Israel. It's not for us. And to exiles like us who are battling day in and day out, sometimes on the inside, if my heart is anything to go by, then it's a battle on the inside or my mind. And I know it is for you. And sometimes it's a battle on the outside with just the stuff of the world as it kind of gets thrown at us. Then the words of Isaiah 40. You're like, where are we going in the Bible tonight? We're going to Isaiah 40. The words of Isaiah 40 actually burst onto the scene like like a brilliant flash of lightning on a really dark night. You've been there in a dark night. Maybe you've been camping and an electrical storm comes by. And it just lights up the sky in just a moment. That's what the words of Isaiah 40 are like. The words of the prophet, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort my people. Into this harsh world, into this land where hope seems sometimes like it's a candle on its last leg, the God of the home team, the God that we um, belong to is actually reaching out to his world. He is alive and he is well, awake and alert and offering what his people actually need most, what exiles need to hear most, which is comfort. Comfort, my people. Do you, do you need that in your life this evening? The comfort of our God? I know that I do. The comfort of this God who, who reigns. The comfort of this God who... Um, Many, if not most of us in this room, have staked our lives on, have said, no, no, I'm not going to follow the gods of this age. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to follow you. Do you need his comfort, the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who rescues us? Because that's the basic message this evening for exiles like you, like me, like Israel. Comfort, comfort my people. This word of the prophet is like a stream of water in a barren desert. Beleaguered and bludgeoned people from daily life come to this word to drink deeply and to find streams of of living water that go to the depth of who we are. So I want to look at this word just briefly and dig into it a little bit further because though it's declaring comfort right in the beginning from the prophet, we've got to dig a little deeper to find now What is this comfort in and and where do we actually find it as exiles in this world? The the short answer that Isaiah 40 gives to this question is that our comfort is in God himself and his coming coming to us. We see this in verse 9 where we read of the phrase the good news or gospel utilized in this way in what will become the the standard way of speaking of gospel or good news. And the gospel is simply this, verse 9. Behold your God. 
That's the phrase. God, actually, God himself is the gospel. God is the good news. God, the one who's not distant and removed and forgotten us, but God, the one who's coming. God, the one who's present. God, the one who is here and who is coming to visit his people. He's alive and well, and he hasn't forgotten you. Whatever you may feel like tonight. The imagery of making a highway in verses 3 through 5, make straight in the desert a highway for our, for our God, is rooted in this custom in the ancient world where a city would go out and would prepare the road if there was a visitor of, of great importance coming, like a prince or a king or an emperor. They'd go out and they'd prepare the way, they'd prepare the roads, because this person of great importance was coming to be with them. And that's the image that the prophet uses of this significant visitor coming to visit his people. And we know ultimately that these words of Isaiah in, in, verse, in chapter 40 um, are actually about John the Baptist and they're about Jesus. We heard the echoes of them in our, in our reading from Mark 1 tonight. Um, we read in verse 5, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The Gospel of John puts it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Paul puts it like this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God has come among his people. That's the source of the comfort. And this is the source of good news of verse 9 that is to be proclaimed. He is coming. I want to point out three things from the fact of his coming um, that speak to this issue of comfort deeply. The first thing is the issue of pardon. This is announced right out of the gate from Isaiah in verse 2. He says that her warfare, speak this tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. That's how the message begins. You know, we talk a lot about a lot of different things in the church, and we should talk about them. We talk about new creation. We talk about redeeming our vocations. We talk about beauty. We talk about the fullness of human life lived under the lordship of Jesus. We talk about creational design and living in accordance with that design, which is also known as wisdom in the biblical text. But the beginning of the comfort to the exile lies in the reality of pardon. The bread and butter, if you will, the staple of the diet of the Christian is forgiveness. This reality of pardon is at the center of the Christian faith. And this, this, uh, the first reality of his coming is pardon. That's the first reality that we want to reckon with tonight. Our rebellion, our sins, our um, engagement in the world of exile, our, our, our flirting after false gods just yesterday or three days ago, all of that, all of that is forgiven by the King who comes. Remember the words of John the Baptist in um, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John? Behold, when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or as Peter said to those who were gathered around him on that Pentecost, that day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God is coming. He comes, but he comes to die. He comes to be the suffering servant 
of Isaiah 53. He comes to pardon exiles like us. And the first proclamation of comfort to exiles is that of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a reality. The question I have for you is, is do you know that reality tonight in your life very personally? This isn't just a message about some kind of um, esoteric truth out there, but this is a message that applies deeply to you and to me on a daily basis. Do you know this reality of forgiveness? Have you truly experienced the comfort of pardon in your life? The the brilliance, the warmth, the wonder, the fire at the center of the Christian faith is the fire of forgiveness. The fire of, of being set free, released from our guilt and from our shame. Of being forgiven. In our comforting words after the confession tonight, I quoted from Colossians 1, which says, In Jesus, Jesus is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is everywhere in the New Testament as central and critical for our lives. Do you know this forgiveness? This reality of being forgiven? You know, if sin, if you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about forgiveness? You know, if sin seems trivial to us at all, then that's a sign that exile is actually becoming more and more like our homeland. Because the world in which we find ourselves in exile does think sin is not really a big deal, that, that going our own way doesn't really make much of a difference, and on and on. But, but death, evil, disease, violence, and the general brokenness of our world are a result of our rebellion. It's a big deal, and we're implicated. And we can tell it's a big deal by simply the way in which God deals with it by the sending of his own son to be sacrificed on our behalf. To bring us pardon. Pardon is this word that that where all comfort begins. And it's not something that we do. It's not something that we did. This word of the prophet in Isaiah 40 that, that flashes like a flash of lightning comes out of nowhere into a world of exile. God, God is the central actor. God is the one who brings this pardon. Second two elements, this is the first one, is pardon. That is where our comfort is rooted, um, that we see are actually are found in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. This is the second part, which is the reality that, that he comes to rule, and he comes with power, and he comes with might. So it's move over Marduk, and move over greed, and move over evil, and move over sex, move over sin, move over enemy because God is coming to rule and he has might or power and his recompense, his justice that is before him. He's not coming to play second fiddle to somebody else's first fiddle. He's coming to rule and to reign and to conquer. And all the gods of this exiled world are trivial and will be dealt with. Think of the reactions to Jesus from the demons and those that they possess. They shriek, they convulse, they cry out for mercy before the king when he comes to rule. And then in John chapter 12, we we read that Jesus is going to drive out the prince of this world, ultimately the greatest exorcism to take place, Satan himself. So he comes to rule. And it says also that we need not to have fear because he comes to rule. So he comes to pardon, he comes to rule. And then thirdly, he comes as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
He comes as the good shepherd. Jesus spends a whole chunk of time on this in John chapter 10 to expound upon this fact of God being the good shepherd. But he comes to carry for his sheep. Helpless, stumbling and bumbling sheep like us. God comes to care for them. He comes to rescue them. This is a picture of tenderness and of compassion. He comes to nurture, to bless, to provide for the sheep that have strayed away. And this tenderness alongside this power of God is something that we need to know to trust in and to rest in in our exile. So all of this is referred to as good news, as gospel. This is the good news for exiles, that God is coming to forgive, to rule, and to care for his people. We can't earn our own forgiveness. We're tired because we rule ourselves and we make a big mess of it. We're tired because we're trying to comfort ourselves with all kinds of things that can never comfort. But the good news is that God has come to do those things for us which we cannot do for ourselves. And he's come to do that in full. And we're called to be recipients, to receive, to join, to to welcome this good news that deserves to be shouted from the high mountains and and to be shouted with a strong voice and without fear, all from from verse 9. So my question as we close is, how do we know all of this is going to happen? It it often doesn't feel like, as we live in exile, as we do, that this is actually going to come about in fact. And the reality is, is that when this message was proclaimed in Isaiah 40, the life of those living in exile in Babylon did not actually change at that moment. This was a word pronounced but not yet fulfilled to the people who heard it. They were much more like POWs in their prison camp and and who had stolen and found a kind of crackly radio and heard over the radio that the battle had been won by the Allies. But still in their daily experience, they were under their captors. And that's the way this proclamation comes out. That God has won the war. God is coming. In other words, their hope and their comfort, just like our hope and our comfort, was not to be in what they saw or, or felt or experienced in the world in which they lived in Babylon. But it was to be in what God had promised. And this is where this section um, that I've left out up to this point um, comes to bear in this, this part of Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. How can we know that God is coming? How can we know that that these things are reality? How can we know this comfort that our God has given to us and spoken into our world of exile? We can know it by the, the certainty and the establishment and the the substantialness of his word. Over and against the fickleness and the frailty and the unfaithfulness of human beings like us. This is the place to root our hope. Now obviously there's one major difference between the exiles to which Isaiah 40 is written and to those of us who are exiles in 21st century Boston. And that's the reality that Jesus in fact has come. Now, they had the reality of the Exodus to look back to and say, you know, remember when God rescued his people out of Egypt? Well, we have the reality of the new Exodus to look back to. The reality of God in the person of his son, Jesus, actually coming and living among and dwelling with his people, dying and being raised to new life. The the, the beauty, the glory, the wonder of resurrection. We have that to look back to. 
But the promises of Isaiah 40 have only been fulfilled in part up to this point. And we wait for their consummation. And we wait especially in this Advent season. Now let me close with with this illustration. Um, I spent a lot of time in the backpacking world and and orienteering and things like that. And the reality is, is that exile can be quite disorienting. The experience of exile can disorient us. So when you end up in a place where you, um, in, a, in, in, in backcountry world, when you end up in the mountains and you don't know where you are, you have to do what's called triangulation. And so you find some fixed points, some, some places that you recognize, both on your map and in reality, and, and you orient yourself and your compass to those points, and you draw lines from those three points to find out where you are. And I want to suggest to you three fixed points to orient our lives in the midst of exile. One one is the first coming of Jesus, the reality that Jesus has come and that what's declared here in Isaiah 40 has in fact been fulfilled in some ways in the coming of Jesus. And this is something that the church um, celebrates and proclaims every week that we gather and every time that we come to this table, we proclaim that our Lord has in fact come, that he's died and that he's risen again. So that's the first point. The second point to fix um, ourselves and to find ourselves um, and to orient ourselves off of us is the promised second coming of Jesus. The reality that things as they are right now is not the way that w- they will finally be. That Jesus is actually coming back and he'll renew and change everything that we experience in our world and cleanse this world. Our Advent hope of new creation. So that's the second point to anchor. And the third point to anchor is this one that comes out of verses 6 through 8. It is in the word of our God which stands forever. This word from a faithful God who comforts his people. That promises without fail. That this hope that we proclaim, this this resurrection that we proclaim, is actually going to come to pass. And so we root our hope in that word. And finally, the spirit. Otherwise known as the paraclete, the comforter in John's gospel. What do exiles need more than anything? We need the comfort of our God. And the Spirit comes and the Spirit is with us between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. To be a comforter and to shine the light upon the word which undergirds as a foundation the hope that we proclaim, the hope that we have as exiles.